1: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions.
2: Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something.
1: What's up, baseball buffs, movie fans, and math nerds alike? This is episode 106 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Patch, and with me as always is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hello. This week to celebrate the return of America's pastime, we're going to be talking about Moneyball, the 2011 film based on the book of the same name by Michael Lewis. But we are also joined by a fellow podcaster and friend of the show, Chad Hopkins, co-host of both the Cinescope and an American Workplace podcasts. Chad, welcome back to the show. Hey guys, I'm glad to be back and talking baseball. Glad to have you. I know that Moneyball is a Movie that you hold near and dear to your heart, and it's really good
0: to have you as part of the conversation this week thanks. I'm glad to uh, continue to talk about this movie. We actually covered it on Cinescope a few months back as well, but Aaron, I have a bone to pick with you Wait because you yeah we we were supposed to record this a few weeks back, but no, this happened and we delayed it, and then this happened and we delayed it and now you waited until the weekend where the Rangers, my team, and the Mariners, your team. Have to square each other off just so you could rub it in my face that you won the series. I, I, I'm on to you.
2: Well, I appreciate you kind of taking the self, you know, route of of giving yourself up there and admitting that your team <laughs> lost. I, I didn't even have to rub it in because you just rubbed it in for me. So that's well, pretty we, awesome. we won today. So at least it wasn't a sweep. Oh man, I was so hoping it was going to be a sweep too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was so hoping it has been a long time for me since I have had something to root for with the Mariners into the, say, second week of the season. So I'm pretty excited that we did delay this because I'm still into baseball and usually it doesn't last
0: for very long. Yeah, the, the is- Rangers are pretty hard to love right now. Um, but, hey, we pulled one off today. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's a long season, gentlemen. That's true. Well, before we get into our official review, as we always do, we'd like to talk about what we've been up to, and Chad as our special guest. Why don't you kick us off?
0: Okay. Well, uh, recently I saw Ready Player One in theaters, as you guys both have, and I've podcasted over Ready Player One, just like you guys have. I saw it four times in theaters, though, and I loved it every single time. I saw it with different people every time, including by myself once, because sometimes you just got to see things for yourself. And then uh, a few weeks ago, I also went to the Fan Expo Dallas, which was, well, here in Dallas, and I originally bought a package to meet the main forecast uh, from Back to the Future, which, as you guys know, and as a lot of the people probably listening who are familiar with me know, yes, that's my favorite movie. And uh, Michael J. Fox, Leah Thompson, Chris Lloyd, and Tom Wilson were all supposed to be there, but uh, Michael J. Fox and Leah canceled the week of the event. Leah, actually the day of. Uh, so that was a bummer, but I did get to meet Chris Lloyd uh, for the second time and Tom Wilson, who plays Biff. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I got their autographs and uh, took photos with them and the DeLorean, which they had on on site. And I also got to meet and get the signature of Drew Struzan, who is a poster artist uh, that everybody's familiar with. Even if you don't know the name, he did the Back to the Future posters, the Indiana Jones posters, original Star Wars posters, Blade Runner, endless, so many great posters from the 70s and 80s in particular. And then I also got to meet Mario, <laughs> just for fun, Charles Martinette, who's the voice of Mario from the video games and lots of other characters. So it was a fun time. And that's what I've been up to over the past few weeks. That's fantastic, Chad. And um, if,
1: you, uh, if you haven't known about Struzen uh, a good chance to check him out. is There's a documentary on him on Amazon. I believe Prime has it. So you can check it out for free if you have Amazon Prime. But it's a great documentary that talks about him and his experience and his con- contribution to the world of, of movie posters and whatnot. Yeah,
0: he's a very nice guy. And uh, here in my stairwell at my apartment, I've got three posters hanging up and all three of them are by Drew Struzan. So it was really cool to meet him and get him to sign one of them. That's
1: great, man. That's great. Well, I have had an interesting week. My wife who works at our local middle school wanted to have me into the classroom to talk to her students about podcasting. This last project that they're working on for the year is each student has to come up with a podcast and produce it as well, as much as you can as a sixth grader. And what started out as a commitment to a couple of hours in her particular classroom with the teacher that she's a teacher's aide for, turned into an all-day event. She called me about a week before I was supposed to come up and she said, hey, so it looks like you might be doing more than just a couple of classes. And so last Wednesday, I got a chance to talk about podcasting to about 206th graders over the course of about six or seven hours. I did a 45-minute presentation for each each section of sixth graders. And so I did it about six or seven times. So by the end of the day, I was exhausted. My voice was exhausted, but it was an incredibly enjoyable experience when I look back on it. And more than anything, what it did was it allowed me to not only talk about one of my passions, which is doing these things, doing podcasts, but also get an understanding of what podcasting is, where it came from. I had to do some research to kind of give the kids a little bit of a a vantage point of where it all started, and so doing that research, I got to be really, really uh, interested in in the timeline of here's where it started. It didn't really start like this. The fact that the word podcast even exists is a surprise. It came from a a guy named um, Ben. I can't. Now his last name escapes me, but he works for the Guardian. He wrote an article back in 2004 where he was trying to put a concept of the popularity of Apple's iPods with this netcasting, as it was called, together and give it some kind of of name. Say, what are we going to call this? And then the word podcast was born. So getting a chance to walk through the history of how this thing came to be to where it is now uh, really gave me an appreciation for what we're doing as a show. And Chad, I'm sure what you do, uh, just anybody in the podcast community to know that what we kind of take for granted even down to the semantics of what we call these things really is only about 15 years old from what we know of it. And it was incredibly surprising and educational and entertaining to say the least. And I really had a good time with it. The kids had a lot of good responses. They had some great questions to ask. And, uh, it's neat. Cause now according to, uh, their teacher, I am a podcast expert, which sure. Okay. That sounds great.
2: <laughs> you are absolutely. And I, I, I always thought that was really neat when you told me about the fact that it was only 15 years old when we were kind of talking before your presentation about this and you and I were kicking around ideas to make sure you had your outline right I I, that really jumped out at me because I couldn't believe it I thought wow this is it feels like something that's been happening for most of my life and yet it it isn't hasn't even been happening for half of my life yeah Chad
0: I'm sure you can relate because you teach school right yeah, I do. And uh it's funny that you mentioned this because uh forming a sort of podcasting social club has been something that's occurred to me. Uh I don't know what that would look like, uh, but I, I think it would be cool to pursue. Uh that or a Rubik's Cube Club, those are both things that I've thrown around. But still <laughs> nothing, way, alike. Nothing, nothing alike. Nothing alike whatsoever. No. But they're both <laughs> fun things, fun hobbies. And uh, you know, podcasting is something that I've been a fan of for Uh, At this point, it has been half my life because I probably discovered podcasts in 2005 with MuggleCast and uh, that's still going strong and I still listen to it and now I'm doing podcasts of my own. So it's very cool that you were sort of uh, versed in the history of this thing that we do every week and spend a lot of our free time on, but have a lot of passion for.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Aaron, what about you? What have you been up to this week? Oh, man. Well, it's been a busy but awesome kind of week for me with lots of new exploration of movies and TV and different stuff. So I may kind of rapid fire this instead of going in depth uh, because I like to mention everything. We know how I am. But the highlight for me this week is actually similar to you, Patrick, and kind of you too, Chad, in that it's not necessarily a specific film or piece of entertainment that we're talking about connecting to. It's something around it or the medium of podcasting. And I got a chance to get on stage after a screening of La La Land with a friend of ours named James Harleman, who is a Seattle pastor uh, here in the area, and he's been on our show, was with us for our Blade Runner episode last year. And I got to have a debate with him because he has some issues with La La Land and I have less issues with La La Land. And so After the movie, we spent about 45 minutes just talking back and forth and kind of literally refuting each other. He called it a duet in film analysis, which is way cooler than anything I could have come up with. (laughs) But it was a lot of fun, Patrick, especially you. I I really wish you could have been there. And I'm hoping that we got this on videotape so that our listeners that are listening now and people in our Facebook group who were excited about hearing when I got this opportunity – Um, and that many of them know James Harleman as well, that maybe they'll get to watch this because I think he made some good points as well. And I had to concede a couple of times that, yes, maybe that's not the perfect choice uh, for the movie. But overall, obviously, my takeaway from it, the film is incredibly positive. And it was a nice chance for me to try and explain that to people in, in person versus doing it from behind this screen where I'm going to record it and then edit it and make my voice sound good and take out any awkward cough, coughs or pauses and then send it out to the world. This was live. And so it was a much different experience for me, but an awesome one. Other than that, um, my kids, so this is my birthday weekend. My birthday is tomorrow. And every year for my birthday on my birthday weekend we always go to a movie which is shouldn't be any surprise to movie fans that uh, a movie lover would do such a thing well late last week my daughter texted me a copy of a trailer for a fathom event of a studio ghibli fest movie called the cat returns and she's like dad look the cat returns we should totally do this for your birthday and i was like sure Why not? We always go to a movie on my birthday weekend, so let's just make this the one. Um, We love anime. We've been into it and kind of re-getting into it this last couple of weeks together. And so it it fit in perfectly. Now, we didn't know anything about this one, The Cat Returns. It's not a Miyazaki film. But come to find out, after the fact, it's actually a spinoff of a Miyazaki film called Whisper of the Heart, which is one of the few I haven't seen yet. And this was done by someone else, but he had input on creating some of the characters that feature in this. And we went to it today. And this is now, I think the third anime we've seen in a Fathom event style. And every single one of them has been an awesome experience for us. I love the setting. I definitely recommend for anybody, these Fathom events I've seen Casablanca this way as well. And I was going to watch Rebel Without a Cause for the first time tomorrow, actually, and while I was at this event, they put a a trailer on the screen showing some of the films that they're showing the rest of the year in their Fathom Events uh, classic series, and Rebel Without a Cause is one of them, so I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait and go see it for the first time on the big screen. So not only this Studio Ghibli Fest that goes throughout the year and shows a lot of their best movies, especially the Miyazaki ones that we know and love, but these classic events and i know one that patrick you're going to hear very soon as well you're going to go see karate kid right uh, and cobra kai prior to the episode that we're going to have on both of those things so there's a little bit of a nugget for you listeners that you can look forward to here in a couple weeks that's what's coming up on our schedule so yeah i guess those are the two highlights of my week i I could keep going on and on and on but i do want to talk about Moneyball at some point tonight
1: well let's just go ahead and do that if you guys are ready (laughs) As always, we're going to give our official spoiler alert. We will be talking about all of the movie, or at least as much as we can in the time that we have. So feel free to turn this off, go see the movie, pop it in, however you want to access it, and then come back and join the conversation with us. That being said, we'll start with our guest, and we'll start with our one-word takeaways. Chad, what is the one word that you could use to sum up this movie?
0: My word is the word meaning, um, where... Towards the end of the film, and I know we'll have more to say about this particular moment later, but Billy says, I want this to mean something. And if we don't win it all, then it doesn't mean anything. And so my sort of ultimate takeaway from the film is finding meaning in what you do, whether it's playing the sport or hiring for it or any other myriad of decisions that you structure your life around like Billy has he wants this to mean something beyond just proving a point that this is a new way of approaching baseball. He wants it to mean something that they've approached baseball in a different way. this is redemption for his own failed career. This is changing the game while still not losing what is romantic about baseball. And so that's my, my one word is meaning.
2: Well, that's a good one. Yeah. Aaron, what about you? I never thought of something like meaning as as a one more takeaway. So I, it is always a cool section for me. I love hearing what Patrick has to say and what a guest has to say. A lot of times we'll come up with the same connecting points uh, just out of, you know, not necessity, but we just all happen to have similar personalities to where the same scene might impact us all. And one more takeaways. I don't think they've ever been the same for Patrick and I, or a guest they've always been unique. And so it's a really interesting section of the podcast and something that we start off with for me this one's not even an adjective or a, a, like a verb like I usually pick. This is data, okay? My word is data. First of all, this movie and baseball starting a couple weeks ago really remind me of how much I love this sport for the first month because I mentioned this earlier. Usually my team is out of it after that first month. Unfortunately, the Mariners, that's, that's just the way it goes, all right? But before the grind of that 162-game season sets in, there is nothing quite like opening day. And so this movie reminds me of that. Watching it at this time of year reminds me of that. And I love the fact that baseball is back. Ask me again in a month, and I'm going to give you a different answer. But for now, it's awesome. But really, my takeaway of this is based on the data itself being a driver for this story. I'm a stats nerd. I always have been. And I love seeing data results play out, even over more emotionally or biased driven methods. So making a movie that explores this in an engaging way is very impressive. And somehow it still manages not to show hardly any baseball at all. Awesome dialogue by Aaron Sorkin. That's kind of a, major cherry on the top of this there's nothing like his writing style we love it it's my kryptonite he can make me passionately care about anything i truly believe that he could make a movie about how the clouds move in the sky and someone narrating it and his dialogue would make me think the clouds are like the best thing that god's ever created or something so it's amazing what he can do and i love what he does in this one as well
1: yeah aaron sorkin is is a incredible screenwriter, and it's part of the reason that I came up with the one word that that I took away from from this movie and that's meticulous um, in particular, you have a screenwriter like him who is very specific and very intentional with what words he uses a lot of times his 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 writing can be called rhythmic. Uh, I know that one of the things that appeals to me about the way in which he writes is the fact that he writes very complex lines of dialogue. People have to memorize these things and they have to get into some kind of rhythm with being able to actually go back and forth with another actor. But that's just one piece of what I think makes this movie so well done is it surrounds a sport that is not, I mean, it's popular. I mean, it's called America's pastime, but I think a lot of people would argue that it's being taken over by football. And I I understand that. Soccer. The thing about, or or yeah, wait, what? No, (laughs) I tried American football. Excuse me. (laughs) That's why it's America's pastime. Okay. (laughs) But anyway, I I think when we think about this, the game, it's a chess match. It's a game of strategy. It's a game of this person moves this piece. And then this person moves another piece in order to try to counteract that person's move. It's very slow, but it is very rhythmic. There is a sense of a dance that goes on with the way the pitcher winds up and throws the ball to the catcher, the, the, the routine uh, of the batting stance and getting uh, into a rhythm there. We all know a lot of batters who have a specific way in which they get ready and they wind up and they swing. And so Moneyball as a whole really encapsulate this with its data, with the amount of numbers and mathematics that go into something that in some ways doesn't make sense at all, but in other ways makes complete sense. Baseball is a game of numbers because it's about feet and it's about dollars. And it's about all these different numbers that matter. And specifically Moneyball really exemplifies this in the character of Billy Bean. He's basically saying and learns that numbers matter. Numbers, not people are important in this game. And I think that the time and care that's taken with the story itself Is echoed by Sorkin's script writing. I think it's echoed by the characters as they portray these people on screen. And it makes for a very interesting movie because it's one of my favorite baseball movies. And as you mentioned, Aaron, there's not a lot of baseball to be played. It's, but it's a lot like what Sorkin writes about the behind the scenes, like what goes on behind the curtain of and pick your subject. For the West Wing, it was about the White House. For the newsroom, it was, of course, behind the scenes in the newsroom for studio 60 on the sunset strip. It was about the behind the scenes of a comedy show. It's, it's about what's going on behind the scenes that we don't see as people as fans. Yeah,
2: We didn't spend a lot of time on Facebook in the social network.
1: Yep, no, Exactly. Right. So I guess, okay. But in any case, it's what makes the movie really stand out as a quote baseball movie, because there's not a lot of the game that's being played and yet it still feels that way. So getting into the first topic, I wanted to ask a question. The movie has mass appeal. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. And it's to people who aren't math nerds or even baseball fans. And it was even nominated for a Best Picture. And I wanted to ask, and I wanted to start with you, Aaron. Why is that? What makes a movie like this so appealing?
2: Well, I think that it has to do with the way that Sorkin creates stories based on real-life events. He does this in the social network as well by changing the personalities a bit of Zuckerberg and some of the other characters. He really flares it up, right? He keeps the trajectory the same, but he makes it an exciting film experience. This is a book that is about what I said, data, stats. It's about sabermetrics. It's about... The existence of a new methodology in how to evaluate players on a detailed level in order to create a winning team. Frankly, that doesn't scream great cinema. So what I think he does is by giving us that personal story of Billy Bean intercut into this movie about having him where he had to choose between baseball and Stanford, how he grew up a five-tool prospect, and then ultimately became a bust and it kind of makes us feel like he has something to prove. He's got a reason now. I think that the audience resonates with that kind of personal connection more so than just this economic based change in thinking, because that's really all it is. It's about how do we create a baseball team that does better and wins so that we make money and are successful. And I think that his redemption story is what it turns out to be that kind of drives what Moneyball is all about, the movie, and not necessarily just the method. So he, he is front and center. And I think that he also does this. He kind of does the same thing by creating a more compelling composite character. And Patrick, I remember before the podcast started, I didn't even really know how to define a composite character. And we talked about it enough that I went from kind of, being annoyed by them to understanding why they need to exist. And Sorkin is one of the masters at making them. But this character of Peter brand didn't really exist in real life. He's a mashup of different scouts and uh, specifically a man named Paul D Podesta, who was kind of maybe sort of considered one of the grandfathers, of the Saber uh, approach. And it makes the story more touching when we attach it all to a brilliant new thinker with this one guy who had this incredible idea and the old vet who trusted him in order to be redeemed than it does when you think about it as oh, a whole bunch of people over time kind of came up with this idea and it just happened to be a perfect storm and come into to the works with this Oakland team
1: yeah I, I you make a great point in the fact that composite characters, what they do is they get the best of everything about the char- about the, these people in the story. If you were to try to bring every character that made up that composite character into a story, the story would get incredibly long and probably not as interesting. And so composite characters give us the spirit of what I think the best parts of the story are. So if people were telling a story about me and you in our podcast, and there were other people connected. I would hope that they would find the best parts, the most in- interesting parts of those characters and bring them maybe into a singular person in order to keep the timeline succinct and at least the narrative
2: really, really tight. Hey, if anybody listening right now in our Feel and film, Facebook discussion group wants to start a discussion thread this week about what the composite character of Aaron and Patrick would be, we would love to see that. <laughs> we know it's going to have my looks and probably my smooth voice. I'm trying to think what we might take from you. Why don't, why does not take your arrogance too while, while we're at it? So no, that's, can we that? a, that's not a good, <laughs> trick. that's, that's, that's we take your thing. humility, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm derailing the podcast all over the place tonight. We cannot not take that quality either.
1: No, Chad, what about you? What do you think um, appeals to this mass audience uh, with a movie like this? That can be very specific in its subject matter.
0: I agree that centering it around people, and making it about people and their relationships with each other uh, is what really centers it emotionally. Not only Billy's personal history as a baseball player, but also his relationship with his family. He, he we can make some assumptions. We're not giving an- we're not given answers in the film, but we can make assumptions about his relationship to his ex wife and perhaps why they're split up because why not guess that he's over dedicated himself to this job? And so he we see he's not there for big parenting decisions, like giving his daughter a cell phone and uh, those kinds of things. And then looking at people like Peter, who is this economics geek, fresh out of college, this is his first job ever. He's just a guy who loves baseball, but nobody will take him seriously because he doesn't have the baseball background that these seasoned veterans do have. And so the fact that Billy is sort of redeeming himself both as a player and as a manager and as a father in some ways, and then allowing Peter to come in and make his own difference and be seen in his own way. It's almost like Billy acts as a talent scout for Peter and vouching for him and hoping that what Peter turns out is better than what he, Billy, turned out as a player. So it sort of comes full circle in spotting talent and hoping that it pays off.
1: Yeah, and adding the the backstory of being as a player, I think in my opinion gave him agency. It gave us the ability to somewhat empathize with him. Because the movie starts out with him basically losing it. Like he is just just banging a I I think it's the scene where he is just banging a radio up against the wall or he's he's just getting very angry and you can insinuate what you know about him from this point on you're like oh he's going to be an angry dude what's going to happen and and then over the course of the film we get a bit of backstory not just a bit we get more than just a bit we really kind of get his whole high school to the majors to his fallout coming up and then eventually, you know, joining the staff of the, uh, of the athletics. And I wonder, did that enhance the overall narrative for you guys? I mean, we liked it, but did it, could had, could the film have done just fine without that backstory in terms of how we
2: responded to it? Aaron, what do you think? Well, the question posed to me just now, (laughs) could it have done just as well? For us, I think yes, it could have. Okay, could it have done just as well for the general audience? Absolutely not. And I think that's what we were getting at earlier with that first question: is that that's what makes it an accessible film to people who don't give a rat's crap about baseball numbers? You know, and mm-hmm. Billy Bean says this while he's explaining sabermetrics. Um, he says it's you gotta buy players to buy runs to buy wins essentially right it's about buying wins and mm-hmm. that's what this whole thing this data-driven approach is about it's not about the romance it's not about the decisions that are how is trying to make that are traditional in nature it's not about this guy's not a first baseman so i'm not going to play him i want to play the first baseman you know i want to do things the way we've always done them that's very much more cinematically interesting so mm-hmm. i I don't think that it would have done as well and I, but I will tell you for me personally these aspects of the film are the weakest aspects of the film like I don't personally care too much about Bean's backstory it doesn't mm-hmm. really do much for me okay um,
1: his, and that's kind of what I was getting at for for us for the three
2: of us yeah his relationship yeah. with his daughter I you know I don't really get a lot out of that either I mean it's kind of sweet toward the end I really like the ending scene where she calls him. And she's like, turn on the radio, and he has to do that. But outside of that, I feel like it's maybe the most tacked on thing in the whole film. Because she's just she's, – there are a couple scenes she's in there thrown in. It's not – there's nothing developed really there that, that gets me going. So, no, those parts of the movie for me are not the highlights. Yeah. What about Tisha?
0: They're not the highlights for me either. But I think that seeing him as a real person – with a history in the sport also gives him agency not only to the audience, but also to the players in the film. So it's necessary in that way that they see this guy who is paying their salaries as a guy who's been in their shoes, who has gone through uh, the the rejection in baseball when you've given all you've got and you don't have anything left. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: so he is a guy who through failure has realized I sort of wish I had a second shot at this. And so I'm going to give these other guys a second shot. And yes, it's about proving that they can make their budget work, but it's also giving guys like, uh, is it Chad Bradford who pitches funny? Yeah. Yeah. There's him who, who just looks funny, but he's perfectly effective at what he does, uh, in the way he does it. And then giving somebody like Scott Hatterberg, who's never played first base before, but, man, he has a kid too. And he has a wife who's paying the bills on Christmas Eve while he sits there and watches TV because he's out of a job. Mm-hmm. And so it, having those, that, that backstory for Billy also helps to make him real to his players as well and helps them to buy into the system eventually once he opens up what exactly he's trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah. And I think Billy is an interesting character and I'm going to frame this in the in the form of the, of the film, I'm not going to really kind of speak to him as a real person, because as you and I know, Aaron biopics, we we have to take the movie for what it's telling us, not for what the world is saying about this character. And so Billy bean as a character in this movie is very interesting. And this time around, I got a different vibe from him, not positive or negative, but just different. Something I noticed that I didn't really pay attention to the first few times I've seen this was his, almost aggressive nature, his mean nature. Like he, he didn't, he didn't seem to have a heart. This was the Tin man, I think to me, when it came to baseball and, and I understand why, but his approach to this particular season was incredibly aggressive. And, you know, he fired his lead scout, nearly fires his manager. He makes these aggressive trades that could have gotten him fired and really in the grand scheme of things don't make sense. Um, unless they paid off. And so you're talking about, Hey, let's look at the end of the season. And was that decision? Right. Do you guys see justification in these decisions? I mean, he was definitely going on faith and faith in numbers, but (laughs) is there rationale to this? Is there justification to this?
2: Well, I understand the pushback. Okay. And Mm -hmm. it creates wonderful drama, by the way, in the movie. Yes, I agree. Him having to discuss with art, how, that he needs him to play the team the way the team is played is an outstanding back and forth between he and Philip Seymour Hoffman. This, this standoff of sorts, right between Brad Pitt and and Hoffman, these two accomplished great actors. It's also a very realistic fact that if you don't play the team, the way the team is built to be played, it's not going to be successful. And I think it gets that across really well. I love that you pointed out how angry Billy Bean is because he does get angry all the time and that stood out to me this last viewing how many times he like flips a desk or throws something out the door or just generally gets mad when he walks in there at the end and the players are dancing toward the end of the film uh, after they're when they've been on the losing streak he's he's upset and they're like listening to music and he, he it's right before he cuts Jason Giambi. He like picks up a bat, and I genuinely was like, oh my gosh, I'd forgotten what was going to happen. Is he going to hit somebody with that bat? And of course, he smacks something to get their attention, but like that's the rage I felt. Um, And so I found it interesting, as a quick side note, that the players actually say that this is a dead-on impression of Billy Bean. Actually, it was Barry Zito who specifically said that he feels like Brad Pitt and nailed him perfectly. So this is how billy beam must have been and he is very blunt i think he's he plays him very much to the point it's a no nonsense position he's in as a general manager i'll tell you one of the most fascinating things for me in the entire movie is the trade scenes i love 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 that background right where You see these general managers wheeling and dealing and you see what they do on a daily basis and how it happens when he's got somebody on the phone and he's simply going through a list of players that he knows off the top of his head. I I think to myself, like when I do fantasy baseball trades, all of the I have more data in front of me when I'm trying to make a fantasy baseball trade Mm -hmm. than Billy Bean does when he just makes a phone call. He's like, hey, I'll give you a Smith. And a bag of peanuts and two million, or how about five million and the first round pick? And you know, John, what about Johnson? Give me Johnson, you know? Like, it's just yeah. it's so much fun. And I think that to answer your question, I think that him being that aggressive is a necessity. And I feel like most successful sports general managers and CEOs of companies and people that run businesses like this that have such a high barometer for winning and and what they consider being successful i think they have to have that personality
0: type
1: yeah yeah chad what about you
0: to answer the question was he justified in the way he treats people in this film i think the answer is no because justified to me means this was the right thing for him to do in the right way and mm. i don't think that but i agree with aaron's point that there has to be a level of aggression in order to to make it in such an aggressive Uh, line of line of work. I mean, you're, you're making trades, you're making big decisions for people who are, who are paid thousands upon millions of dollars in some cases to play a sport. And so Mm -hmm. those are some high stakes decisions. Now, I think Billy's failure through most of the film until they get to the win streak is that he just doesn't communicate with everybody. I think if he had communicated with his lead scout from the very beginning, this is what we're doing and this is why we're right. doing it. And this is why we're breaking from tradition. Then things would have been a lot smoother. And obviously we want that drama. And so I'm not <laughs> begrudging the film that, but as a character, if he had just said, this is our approach, this is why we're approaching it and why we have to make these adjustments in order to stand a chance against teams like the Yankees who just have millions upon millions of dollars to throw at their players. right? And so, uh, yeah, that, that's basically it for me. W- once we get to the win streak, though, he starts to open up. He starts to communicate to his hires and say, Listen here's some tips. Here's what I think. I'm I'm going to mingle with you now as opposed to earlier in the film when I said I'm not going to mingle with you because I don't want to grow close in case I fire you. Mm-hmm. And it, it's getting rid of those barriers and becoming less aggressive as the film goes on uh, that I think helps to lend to the team's success. But then we wouldn't have gotten the great lines like, guys, check your reports
2: or I'm going to point at Pete. Okay, I want to I talk a little bit about those
1: particular scenes, uh, the the scenes around the the table, because there's a little bit of irony here with a film that is. Would, would, okay, let me, let me prose it this way. Would I be correct in saying this film, at least in some way, it supports the idea of teamwork. Would, yeah. would I be wrong in that? Okay. Aaron, would, would you be on board with that? At least in some, some
2: capacity. It does based on what I was saying earlier about, that quote about how everybody has to do their part together for it to work. Right. So the,
1: the irony of that is that those scenes around the scouting table may have come across in some ways as teamwork, but really it was dictatorship because at at that point, Billy was saying the first conversation with him, listening to all these guys. And granted, a lot of the stuff they were saying was ridiculous. Like you don't want this guy because he's got a girlfriend and she's a real distraction and blah, 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 blah. And, and he's like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I get it. I mean, that's good leadership. It's putting the ball in the court of these guys to say, what's our vision here? What's happening? But even later on, when Pete comes in the room and while it does make for fantastic lines to remember, it still comes across as, you know what? You guys are done or at least you need to listen to me. I get his position. He's the GM and he is trying to do something, but I, Chad, I agree with you. I think if he had come along and said, I think he did say, this isn't working. Let's try something else. Let's try something else. Not I'm going to try something else and you're just going to go along with it. I really kind of, I felt for the lead scout at that, at that point, I was like, the lead scout was like saying, look, we know about tendencies. We know about, uh, about all these different things. We've been in the game for this long and we see stuff happening and he completely under, you know, just undermines them and says, you don't know anything. This new thing is what we're going to do. And I think that's where the, the, it's a good conflict to have. And it makes for a more interesting movie because you've pretty much got this idea of the old way of thinking versus the new way of thinking And there's some conflict there because I don't know that I completely agree in one way or the other. And so I think that enhances his aggression. I would probably maybe describe that more as passion and more as frankness than aggression. Although those times that he flips tables over and takes a bat to, you know, electronic equipment definitely supports the idea that he's a, he's an aggressive dude. But as far as justification, I don't, I don't know, because I feel like you're, you're still dealing with people, even though this is a movie about numbers, the people are still behind those numbers. They're the ones generating those numbers.
2: Yeah, they absolutely are. And, you know, I don't know. I think it's, it's interesting to me because I really feel like his eric, original rep- Approach is much more the way it kind of should be. like I don't think he should be that personal with the players, the GM. like that that's not his role. He's not the coach. Um, he does have to play that role and fire them and he's teaching Pete along the way. you talked about that earlier, Patrick mentorship and bringing Pete up um, and how he's not supposed to be there like in that capacity with them. His job is to treat them like data. I mean, he can treat them differently like data and he can understand they have families, but his job is not to worry about Scott Hattieberg's wife and kid. His job uh-huh. is to put a good baseball team on the on the field. And Scott Hattieberg's job is to play good enough baseball to have a job so he can provide for his wife and kids. I completely agree with that.
1: But the scouts in the room are not the players that he's not trying to affiliate with. These are the guys that are his eyes and ears out there. He's not in every living room. At, for every for every single player. He's in there significantly throughout the film for the for the players that we want to see. But these scouts are the ones doing that job. That's what they are. They're scouts. They're not general managers. I completely get that he makes the final call and if he sees something, he should, as a leader, say, we should try something new and sit down and work through it and maybe try to find a compromise. And I think that's where I get a little frustrated with Billy as a character because He doesn't because his aggression might lead to something that is successful later on, but you've completely lost the trust of the guys under you of the team under you in order to create something new, which ironically is another team that is supposed to trust you. So I I think that he's missing something there.
2: Yeah, I can definitely concur with you there. I think you're right. I think there, there's two different groups of people he has to interact with and he has to have the capacity to interact with them differently. Right. And
1: when you're dealing with people, that kind of brings me to my next question, this whole idea of sabermetrics, which I've read the book and I just fell in love with the math side of it. The math nerd in me was like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe I didn't know about, you know, the fact that that a pitcher's most, you know, important asset is not ERA. It's actually strikeouts and walks. You know,
2: or wins, wins for years growing up, Patrick, we all wins is what mattered. Who won the, the best, the Cy Young award, right? It's the pitcher with the most wins wins Mm -hmm. means nothing because it is so indicative of a team's holistic success, the things that the pitcher does not have any control over. So what you care about is those statistics that the pitcher has full control over and I'll let you keep going. But the one thing I wanted to point out was I really, really love that this movie starts off with a quote. And it's by Mickey Mantle. And it says, it's unbelievable how much you don't know about the game you've been playing all your life. And then that, I think, speaks to exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. And when we look at a game that is built around tendencies and around patterns for so many years, and all of a sudden, this guy named Bill James, who, as quoted by some players, has never played a day of baseball in his life, comes up with mathematical formulas to give players value, so it really kind of raises the question. Or at least the movie asks: Is that successful formula to win games, or is it more of a combination with what baseball purists see as a feel for the game? The scouts kind of articulate that end of it. Um, in other words, is it is it science, or is it you know your personal
2: feel, or is it a combination of both? What do you guys think, Aaron? Well, I'm going to defer to Chad because Chad's actually a slightly bigger baseball fan than me and the grin on, <laughs> the grin on his face tells me that he may have something to say about this. Chad, I think to you.
0: <laughs> I think the film definitely makes the point that it should be a combination of the two. Uh because when when Billy if it was just the sabermetrics, Billy hiring the people would win games. Period. Yeah. Yeah, But he has to defer to Art Howe and communicate with him and try and get him on his side and fail and then resort to talking to the players directly and boosting their confidence and giving them tips and getting them to work as a team in addition to being these hires who have traditions of getting on base. It's it's the teamwork side of it. It's the, the personal ability side of it along with the Saber metrics. And right. I, I think... That if that had been the approach from the beginning, then maybe they would have won by the end of the season or a year or two later down the road. The fact that Boston did it, what, two years later uh, is proof that when you do take a more, uh, to use the word, holistic approach to to baseball science, including the numbers, along with the the tradition and the the players, then. I lost where that sentence began, but I think when you combine those things, then it, it leads to a more successful season. And so the, the head scout had a point in saying, I think it's towards the end of the film when he says baseball, isn't just about the numbers. It's about making plays and making sacrifices and getting people on base and then bringing them home. You have to consider more than just the numbers side of it and actually consider how this how the game is played.
1: Yeah. There's a there's a there's a movie that uh Clint Eastwood directed uh, several years ago called Trouble with a Curve. And I like it for two reasons. One, it centers around my Atlanta Braves, and two, it's got Justin Timberlake in it. So, I mean, whatever. You're just going to have to love that. But it takes the complete opposite approach. And Clint Eastwood plays the the old firm. He plays the traditionalist that goes out as a scout and just listens and tries to hear what a Uh, what a ball sounds like when it hits a bat and he can tell how a person swing as opposed to this new data driven type of thing. And, and it kind of argues the same point, just in an opposite direction. And, um, I think there's some really interesting thing there when you, when you look at the value of a player as a series set of numbers and the value of a player as part of a team. I don't know that I completely buy into the fact that. Boston Red Sox did it two years later eh, because of sabermetrics. It may have been a holistic approach, but I am more inclined to believe that you have teams that are just due at some point. I mean, I don't think the Chicago Cubs, when they won the World Series finally, it was because of sabermetrics. I think it was just they were due and they had the talent to win and they had all the pieces that came together. Aaron, what do you think?
2: Well, here's why I don't think it works. This is not some secluded special, isolated data that only one team has access to. This right. is an approach that anyone and everyone can mimic, including the Boston Red Sox. And ultimately, here's what's going to happen, and what I feel did happen with the Boston Red Sox using this approach to win. The A's have never come close, okay? they What have they won in the last 15 years, Patrick? Have they uh, Half
1: a dozen times they've gotten to the postseason, I think. And then, okay. have they been it as far as the championship series... But have never won, and they've definitely never been to the to the to World the, Series.
2: To the World Series, right? So better than my Mariners, which is the same for every single team except them. But <laughs> not as good as winning anything. And I think that the reason for that is because the A's are forever going to be, or at least in the near future, forever going to be a small market team with a limited budget, with an owner that is unwilling to spend. There's scenes in Moneyball that speak to this, where they he goes to the owner, he says, "I just need a little bit more," and he says. Nope, this is the money you got. Go get me a team with this money. Go buy players that fit into this budget. And here's what my problem with that ever working is. The Boston Red Sox can do the exact same approach, but with more money, it's still going to work better because their versions of the players that we -hmm. can get on the A's are going to be better. So the Scott Hattieberg that can give you such and such statistic line that you need you can afford. The Red Sox can get a free agent that can give you the exact same type of statistic line only better and pay him more. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so ultimately, absolutely. money is going to still <laughs> always be the driving force and I don't think that what I will say is I think this approach can ultimately lead more teams to be successful the less teams that are using it and The more like if we ever got to the scenario where baseball was actually salary capped and teams did not have the advantage like the Yankees do of just spending unlimited amounts of money because their owner's more wealthy. Until that happens, I don't think Sabermetrics has a chance. It has a chance to get you a good season every once in a while. But I don't think that the the A's have proven anything that says this is a
0: method that will be better than the old tried and true methods. I think what uh, Billy using saber metrics in this season says more than anything is that sometimes it's okay to take risk. And sometimes that risk can pay off in bigger ways than you expect. Um, And breaking from tradition is okay sometimes. So I, I don't think, yeah, obviously they aren't successful. They don't completely win the series. They don't make it to the series, period. Uh, but it was a different approach that did lead to some success. And so in that way, it was its own success, even though Billy doesn't see it that way. Does that make so, sense?
1: It does. But I want to ask, do you feel like Billy... Yes, he set a standard, I guess, or at least he brought in something that had not been thought of, at least in a popular mindset. I What I think is more apparent than anything else is that thinking differently about a game that has been being that has been played for so many years can help the game in so many different ways. There's a reason why stadiums have certain amenities that they do. You go to Seattle and having only been there on tour we have uh, grasshoppers. They have grasshoppers, yes, and sushi and lots of other things that You wouldn't see 30 years ago, the hot dog, the nachos, the popcorn, everything. And take me out to the ball game is a part of this cultural, uh, cultural thing we call baseball. And there's the purist in me that says only serve those things because those are the things that need to be at a ball game. We don't need this crazy stuff that you can get at a sushi bar or we don't need that barbecue. That's crazy. But then there's the other person in me who's like, no, this is what makes baseball a lot of fun because baseball is not something that you're always going to be watching the whole time. It's a game of conversation. It's a game of community. It's a game where you're sitting with five or six other people and you're talking about life and other things and baseball is happening in front of you. It's not necessarily a game of immediate excitement like football or basketball because it's not a high energy, high speed game. And I think that what Billy's doing here in terms of introducing sabermetrics, he's doing it out of desperation. He's like, look, money's obviously not working, the lack thereof. So let's try this. And while I don't completely agree that it was a success because the athletics ended up in the exact same place they did a year before with three marquee players. So if you take it like that, in terms of like the law of large numbers over the last 15 years, we haven't seen much success. However, introducing that, I think started an idea that we need to think
2: about the game differently from multiple vantage points i can't remember if it was a line in the film i feel like it must have been or i pulled it from somewhere else maybe but at some point I, i heard someone saying this that ultimately with this approach your players you are going to create stars out of players that don't normally have the potential to become a star and therefore you are going to inevitably price them out of your own Pocketbook, right? So that's you can it would never be a long term approach with the same. Play. You would constantly be having to refill the pool with new low level players over and over and over again. You're not going to get, and I think it is in the movie because I think they talk about it with Johnny Damon like, you're not going to get the Yankees where Derek Jeter comes to your team and stays there for 22 years. Like, because once Derek Jeter goes to the A's and becomes a star, even if he was unknown. Three years ago, then somebody else is going to pay him more, and he's going to go away, and you're going to have to replace Derek Jeter.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, players don't think of themselves in terms of data; they think of themselves they think of themselves in terms of assets and family men and people that want to earn a paycheck. I certainly do not consider myself data uh, for the company I work for. Although my company might think of me that way, I'm a number, I'm a five digit number and that's how I get paid. And that's how I identify in our corporate training, but I don't see myself that way. And so when a player has a chance to move on because he's going to be making more, it may or may not increase his RBI or his on base percentage or his ERA or his, (laughs) or his whip. Because he's not thinking about that. He's thinking about how can I stay on the team that's going to pay me the most, or if he's a dedicated player to a franchise, how can I get this team to pay me what I feel like I'm worth for a long period of time? I mean, Albert Pujols is a great example of someone who you thought was going to be a Cardinal. And he said, nope, here's a team that's willing to pay me in my latter years to sit on the bench and just hit. That's all I'm going to be doing in the latter part of my career and paying me more than the Cardinals will be paying me. So in the end, it came not solely that. I mean, I'm not trying to put him in a box and say he's just in it for the money, but I think money plays more of a factor to players than Sabermetrics does to their owners. And rightly so, because it is a game of money. So the last thing I want to talk about before we get into our connecting points, and I want to open it up to you guys. If you have anything else that you want to talk about is you look at the movie as a whole, and you see this growth of Billy Bean as I mean, if we were to put all these pieces together of his high school, his Major League Baseball career, and who he is now, do you think that in specific ways or in general, his arc as a character is complete? Do you feel like he went from one way of being? to another, or do you feel like the whole experience with the athletics just enhanced characteristics that were already there for him as as a GM? Like do you think that he changed in any way when it came to baseball or to his players or to his family, just within the confines of the movie, not necessarily the guy, but do you think that there was
0: a significant change in him? Do you think he had an arc that that we could see? I think we saw him go from Well, we saw him as a a teenager go Mm -hmm. from a guy with dreams to a guy whose dreams had been crushed because he didn't end up being what he was promised he was going to be. And then to a GM for a baseball club that can't compete with these other clubs and then having to find some sort of approach to get him out of that hole. And so Sabermetrics comes up and Pete comes along Mm -hmm. and he tries a new approach and just for all intents and purposes, it works in a certain way. It doesn't win him the, the the season, but it works in that he's able to prove that this is a legitimate way to approach baseball. And going to what I was talking about earlier through that approach, he learns communication and he learns compassion for these players. And he learns compassion for his daughter in a certain way. I know Aaron, that doesn't stand out as, a primary story point, even for me, it doesn't, but I, I see him learning from his daughter with the song, the show talking about how sometimes you just have to, to live in the moment and enjoy what you're doing and find passion in what you're doing. And I, and so by the end of the film, I do think he has come to a point where he, he decides, you know, this, this is a team I'm still dedicated to after all this time, and I'm going to stick with them and continue to try and prove a point and maybe approach it, approach it differently from the start now that everybody knows what I'm trying to accomplish.
2: That's good. That's good. Aaron, what about you? You know, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, feel, like, I feel like he gains confidence, which is the key to this whole thing working in the first place. The, his island of misfit toys, if you would call them, you know, that's really the main ingredient in any sport to any winning team his confidence they talk about it in the film, you know, Scott Hattieberg looks like he's terrified of the ball. Like he even says, he's like, what, what's your biggest, what, what are you afraid of? Like everything. I'm afraid of the ball being hit to me. You know, and he's like, no, really that, that can't be what you're afraid of. He's like, no, yes, that's, that's what I'm afraid of is the ball being hit to me. <laughs> so that confidence is what grows in Billy. And I think it's a faux confidence that he puts on a mask of it because he has to in his job like you can't you would have never become a gm if you didn't have the depiction of some confidence and he starts off with it but i think through the course of the season as it begins to pay off it becomes real true confidence does that make sense what i'm saying here like he almost fakes it to make it and so i really enjoy the fact that at the end of the film, he has enough confidence, real confidence in himself to like, you're talking about Chad to turn down the Red Sox job and risk it all on himself now to stay with the athletics and to kind of have some loyalty to that organization for trusting him in the first place. That
1: right there, I think is what probably solidifies his character for me is the fact that he has loyalty and, I think because of his experience growing up, being everything that a team needed, um, I think he saw that. Maybe the, And the movie, I think, wanted us to kind of get this, is that he realized that you can't just have talent. You have to be able to bring in everything. And Sabermetrics, I think, allowed him to explore the option of not having the best of the best. I don't think he was negating the fact that your Johnny Damon uh, type of character or type of ball player was useless but that you could find Johnny Damon in three other players. You didn't have to have a five-tool player, which is I think the the sermon that he was preached when he was when he was uh being recruited. And I felt that's when I felt a little sorry for him was the fact that man could have gone to college and he probably still would have been a, a key player somewhere, but having th- you know, two, three, four years more experience and getting his degree, I think that he had growth and I think that he gained real confidence from that faux confidence. But I also think he reinforced loyalty because I think he had loyalty. I don't think that He wanted to go anywhere else. I think he liked being where he was because he liked working with the project. He liked saying, I think by the the end of the movie, he said, a low budget, a small budget isn't a problem. It's a challenge, and I want that.
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. And, you know, I I got a couple quick things. I just want to mention, like, subtle little things about the film. These aren't really deep discussion points, but I was just blown away by the acting this time around. Mm -hmm. This is not a film you normally would think is going to have any kind of stellar acting and it, and it's very odd to me that it stood out in some ways because there's not a lot of overly dramatic moments where we have this major buildup. It's just solid across the board. And to mm-hmm. me, knowing that the players have said that Brad Pitt so perfectly captures the arrogance and the charm and the playfulness and they call it the creative friction during this, this time period Of Billy Bean, when he's going through that and encapsulating it, to me, that's a phenomenal performance. And then you have Jonah Hill, which is not like a totally hilarious performance, who has really great little small bits. There's there's one with David Justice, which I I loved him being in there, Patrick. I immediately thought, oh cool, Patrick is gonna love David Justice is in this movie. (laughs) Not the real David Justice, but the character. But when he when David says on the plane, where on the field is the dollar that I'm buying for soda? And Pete says, <laughs> it's hard to see, you know, like those simple moments were big for me. And the best one that is just, this is Sorkin writing, man, perfectly to a T for him to do something like this. What is one of the biggest things we think about when we think about baseball? Superstition. And he works it into this movie in a, an amazing way. Yeah, He does it. Because we know that Billy doesn't watch games, right? So we've been given that nugget of character development. But he's convinced to go to the stadium for win number while they're working on win number twenty, and they've they've got this big lead on the Royals, and it looks like everything's gonna be fine. And he walks in, and despite this being one of my least favorite scenes in the entire movie, by the way, because it lasts like fifteen minutes. It feels like for one, I mean, oh my God, this was like the perfect example of a baseball game to me. The, the negative part of a baseball game. It was so long. But anyway, he walks in and he's watching and immediately we get to see the Royals start scoring and making a comeback. And so he is feeling like he's a jinx. And so he leaves. And it's to me, while a little bit overboard, it highlights that just kind of crazy aspect of what people feel like when they play baseball. These these guys that are involved in this sport, they're superstitious and he's like, "You know what? It's my fault. I'm walking out the door." And frankly, as a fan, I have some of that in me too, and so it was cool to see it just so subtly without any kind of attention drawn to it mm-hmm. depicted on the screen. Yeah,
1: it's it's very familiar and at the same time entertaining to those that that don't know about that so i, I like that too hey Ch- chad were there any particular moments that stood out to you before we dive into our connecting point
0: uh i always remember the scene when they visit uh house and <laughs> then ron washington and uh billy says playing first base it's not that hard tell him wash wash says it's incredibly hard see <laughs> 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 you know, fun bit of trivia he's currently your manager right Oh, he was. No, or he was. He hasn't been
2: for a few years. Oh, okay. Well, he was he was actually leader, the manager of the Rangers. Mm-hmm. And um I actually looked this up to see was this movie accurate? And every by all accounts, it is a very true depiction to real life events. And uh, they, they asked him, Ron Washington, about this during an interview at one point, and he said, Berg and I did have that conversation. I told him that if he's willing to work, he can get it done, but it's not going to be easy. So a little bit different words, but really in the spirit of exactly how that went down, and yeah, that's such a fun scene. Chris Pratt, dude, Chris Pratt yeah. before he became the idol of, <laughs> of all these franchise movies.
1: Yeah, it was it was great. I think one one scene that stood out to me that that I really enjoyed was between him and Pete. I to this day after multiple viewings, I still can't tell what is in his mouth, but it's typical Brad Pitt eating something. He's always eating something, you know. Uh, we see that Notions 11 and, and whatever, and we see it in Moneyball too. But he's sitting at his kitchen table and he's on the phone with Pete. And I think he's got like a char or something in his mouth, but he's like, hmm. I know when you looked me up, you, you looked at all my statistics. What round would you take me in? What round would you have taken me in the second round? And Pete goes, I would have taken you in the ninth round.
2: <laughs> and and he's going though it's perfect because he's like he's got he says it all he's like i'd have taken you in the ninth round and i'd offered you 250 thousand dollar signing bonus you know and this this and this. like it's a long and you gone to college yeah and you yeah, would have turned it down and you would have gone to college and like never made the major league yeah i mean it was awesome awesome and then he follows it up by saying pack your
1: bags pete <laughs> i just bought you from <laughs>
2: cleveland and then he just hangs up the
1: phone and it's like, I feel like it's that line, like a bogey line that says, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship because Pete had no problem from a statistical point of view, speaking confidence. I would have done this. This is what I know. You know, he, he reinforces that later on where he asks him to do like three or four player profiles and he does what, like 40 or something like that. Yeah, he I don't he, know why. he I says, that. I
0: did 20. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers. I did 20. Uh, I'm, I am I just lied to you. I don't know why I just did that. I did 40. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so funny. And it's such a great way to set up their chemistry together. Not that they were fantastic in it. Absolutely. Well, that was a great scene, but I think my favorite scene, and this is probably where we should probably dive into our connecting points. The scene that stood out to me the most is just after the streak. Um, Everything is set up perfectly. And then we get that high point, albeit the long drawn up moment leading to um, leading to, it was it Hatterberg's home run. <laughs> yes. And we, we then follow that up with a quick, which I thought was surprising. The first time I saw this, a quick, just fast forward into that divisional series loss. <laughs> and then, um, or maybe it's just before it, I can't remember specifically, but I think it's right between the two and Billy is talking to Pete and they're sitting in, I guess, the, game film room or whatever it is to to look over film. And he says, man, I've been doing this for, listen, man, I've been in this game for a long time. I'm not in it for a record. I'll tell you that. I'm not in it for a ring. That's when people get hurt. If we don't win the last game of the series, they'll dismiss us. And that's just incredibly powerful line. I know these guys. I know the way they think and they will erase us and everything we've done here. None of it'll matter. Any other team wins the world series. Good for them. They're drinking champagne, they get a ring. And this is what really, really stuck with me is when he says, but if we win on our budget with this team, we'll have changed the game. And that's what I want. I want it to mean something. Now I love discussions and I love our discussion on this because I actually thought that whole thing when I wrote it down was the most impactful part of that conversation, but it's really that last sentence. I want it to mean something. To me, that's what encapsulates Billy's motivation is he wants what he's doing to mean something. I think that's why he is aggressive in the way that he talks to his scouts in wanting this to happen, because I think he sees value in this whole approach because one, the other approach hasn't been working and they don't have the money to make it work that way. And two, we see him stick around after the, you know, the Boston interview he wants to leave a legacy, but I think he wants to leave a legacy that isn't about wins and losses because that's not what Sabermetrics is about. Well, it, yeah, it's about wins, but it's about more than that. It's about what we assume to be important. And I think that he saw what he was doing as a GM, as being a pioneer, as saying, look, if it can work for us, maybe it can work for the game and maybe it'll make the game better because it may not be the one thing that needs to change about the game, but maybe it will enhance it enough to where it's not just driven by money. It's a very optimistic statement and one that I want to believe in, even though based on our conversation, I don't know that I can completely agree with his statement beforehand that we will have changed the game. I don't think they changed the game. I think they enhanced it, but I don't think they changed it.
2: Yeah. I, mine is actually the same, Patrick. And I, well, I actually have two. My first connecting point is this Cheater, great. Teeter. I cheat all the time. That's well known. But the uh, <laughs> there is a great radio line in this movie, very undernoticed probably, where an announcer's talking about Seattle having just won 10 in a row, and they are now 13 and three. That's my connecting point because we <laughs> haven't come close to that since. No, really, this, this movie hurts me, Chad, because this season, 2002, was when Oakland overtook us. Prior to that, we had been on a streak, including having, at the time, the most wins in a season of baseball ever, and tying that. And this year, is over. Oakland took us over for a playoff spot, and it started our playoff drought, and we have not been back to the playoffs since 2001. So I'm kind of angry at Billy Bean, and it has <laughs> kind of colored my impression of this film and this story, and, and I hate it.
1: Is Billy Bean your Steve Bartman? Is this what they say? You
2: know what? Yeah, yeah, I think he okay. is, and I never really thought about it until watching it this time around. So that's my kind of other connecting point. Your a disconnecting, right disconnecting
1: point. My right? disconnecting point. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but I I have to agree with you, and a little bit of a different perspective on this, and what it what I took it from it is that the line it's hard not to be romantic about baseball i mean that's what moneyball that's what we remember right that's what we all remember it's what we quote to each other and frankly it's true it is hard every year i tell myself i'm done with this sport i don't care about the mariners i'm tired of going through 162 games but like i said in my one word takeaway it's opening day you know what i'm trying to do i'm trying to watch the game i'm trying to to plug into this team see who we've got what's what are we going to do it's all about hope and dreams And I get romantic. The scene that ties into this conversation later, though, with Pete is where he is showing Billy this tape of a fat guy hitting a home run. I love this. And he doesn't realize that he's hit the home run. And then Bean says, and again, he says, he sees this and he says, how can you not be romantic about baseball? And so in my opinion, he did change the game because he presented a manner in which people had to give it thought whether they other gms actually took note of it and did it or not they had to notice because it won 20 games in a row in the middle of a season and it forced them to consider it and to me that's changing the game they hit a home run they didn't win they didn't get to the playoffs and go on and win the world series they never won a world series but they they were successful that year with the method. And so to me, that's a win even if they lost. And ultimately, like we talked about, two years later, this approach with a better budget successfully won the Boston Red Sox the World Series. Their first one since 1918. And while we talked about it and I agree wholeheartedly that I don't think Sabermetrics is the end all be all success story of baseball going forward, we also have to note that this change impacted the Red Sox doing something they had not done since 1918. It's a part of it. So Billy Bean did change baseball and he can be proud of that. And it's hard not to be romantic about that.
1: That's true. That's true. Chad, what about you? What's your connecting point?
0: Uh, The same for the same reasons, but I just for the sake of variety also wanted to mention the scene that is right after he turns down the offer to work with the Red Sox. He says to Pete, I made one decision in my life based on money and i swore i would never do it again and to me like you were talking about patrick th- that's that's the quote that drives home to me that billy is about more than the paycheck he's about loyalty he's about redemption and passion for not only the sport but also for his team that's why uh that's why aaron you're a mariners fan and i'm a rangers fan despite the dark times ahead of us there are our teams <laughs> you know yeah, uh, <laughs> Patrick's team doesn't have a lot of light either. Okay, whoa, whoa,
1: whoa, okay. whoa, 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 whoa! We're <laughs> we're we're sitting comfortably in third place, and I'm happy with that because we're not floating. Why are we celebrating
2: third place in the division? Okay, so because, are we, Patrick? Because,
1: because, because <laughs> we're like the Athletics. We just kind of <laughs> take what we can get, and just our standards <laughs> are low at this point. Just.
0: <laughs> but all that being said, he he threw away a scholarship not for the baseball, but for the paycheck, and mm-hmm. that's that's what he regrets. Now he's being offered the same choice in a way Whether he he's been offered more money to perhaps win to, to, to perhaps be successful, perhaps not. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So instead of going with a bigger paycheck, which would have made him the highest paid GM in the history of baseball, he sticks with the team he's loyal to and has been loyal to for many years and will be loyal to for many more years. And I think yeah. that says so much about his character and it, it, it says so much about, I think, baseball fans. We, we stick to our team. You don't necessarily in most cases move cities and root for a different team just because you live there. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people maybe, but even then you form, you form these relationships with these teams and with these players and uh, with the town of the, with the culture that is focused around that sport. It's hard to not be romantic about baseball. And I think, uh, both of those scenes and both of those quotes really sort of drive that point home for me.
1: Yeah, I think so too. That's some great points, Chad and Aaron to just really kind of finish off. What a, a great conversation we've had. I uh, Appreciate you guys both bringing some great stuff to the table. Chad, if people want to continue the conversation with you, where can they find you on social media?
0: Well, you can find me personally on Twitter. That's the best place at Chadadada. That is C H A D A D A D A. But I also host two podcasts. One is called The Cinescope Podcast, where we talk about the movies we love and why we love them. And it'll hopefully be returning from hiatus in the very near future. Uh, You can find it at thecinescopepodcast.com. And the other is An American Workplace, where my friend Katie and I watch through every episode of NBC's The Office. We just finished season four. And we discuss everything from the character growth and relationships to what makes us laugh to the commentaries into deleted scenes that you don't get from watching the series on Netflix for the 10th time. So (laughs) you can find it on workplacepodcast.com and you can find both of those where other podcasts can be found.
1: Awesome. Aaron, what about you? Where can people find you?
0: Well, I want to plug Chad again, even though
2: he just did it himself. His shows are awesome. We've had a great relationship with Chad. If you've listened to Feeling Film for a while, you will have heard us talk about Chad many times. Uh, we got to meet Chad last year uh, in Texas slash Arkansas for our Baby Driver episode. So check that one out. It's the only one we've ever recorded live together, Patrick and I. And Chad was with us. We did it in a Starbucks. It was, a, it was an interesting experience. <laughs> I, will only, I will say interesting. Uh, it was good. It was fun for us, but unique. And uh, we really love what Chad does. You know, he said Cinescope is a podcast where they celebrate what they love about movies, and that's very similar to what Feeling Film does. We do that with an emotional focus typically, but Chad's show is very structured, and he talks intentionally about the, the music, which we didn't even talk about in Moneyball. And I love the score. This is a subtle, nuanced score, and it's fantastic. I mean, I don't even I didn't even know who Michael Dana was. <laughs> Until I looked it up, right? But this guy has written the Life of Pi score. He won an Oscar for it. So, yeah. But things like that, Chad's show is very meticulous about intentionally talking um, about. And so I, I highly recommend you check that out. And then American Workplace, for anybody who's a fan of The Office, you guys can't go wrong. This is a show that's like one of a kind out there. You need to get this one in your ear holes because you know you're going to be watching it again <laughs> all the way through like you all have done 15,000 times. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. But if you want to talk about me, if you want to, you know, meet me on the internet, you can do so on Twitter at FeelinFilmAaron. I also recently started this thing called Stardust, and my username there is FeelinFilmAaron as well. And I'd like you all to check that out. It's a a cool new platform that lets you do 30-second video reactions, and I'm doing them multiple times a day. I'm trying not to spam those to my Twitter and my Facebook accounts, but you can check them out on Stardust, and you can see what I immediately think about movies press screenings tv show episodes anime trailers all of that stuff if you'd like to talk to me in detail further you can also reach me in the feel and film facebook group which we would love for everybody to become a part of and enjoy that community that is being built around this show it's an awesome one and there's room for you to be there too patrick what
1: about you man Well, you can find me at Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Just plug that into your web browser and you will usually find me floating around there somewhere. Make sure to at me or tag me if you want to keep this conversation or anything else that we've been talking about going. Or just in general, if you want to connect with me, I'd love to talk with you. This next week, we're finally getting caught up on our donor pick episodes. We are actually doing the donor pick for April. And we're going to be talking about Road to Perdition, which I have not seen, I think, since it came out in the theater. So I'm excited to actually get a rewatch. Ditto. Uh, That's going to be fun. So it's almost like a first time. Almost. (laughs) Plus, after that, be looking for a bonus episode for our patrons, uh, our top five heist films. And then for our main course, coming up, It's yes, it's happening. All the hype is here for Avengers Infinity War. Be ready for it because it's coming. I know I'm excited about it. Got my tickets. My wife's going with me. This is a rare thing when uh, my wife and I both enjoy movie experience together. And so we're making kind of a a date night of it. So that'll be a lot of fun. So be sure to check that out. Look forward to talking with you about that, Aaron. Anything else you want to plug? Aaron is shaking his head. Chad's giving me the it's time to call in the closer as always like we like to say <laughs> stay positive and keep feeling film